0: Luke twelve, twelve forty nine. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, Five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming And, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Early in his career, the great composer Ludwig von Beethoven was known to play, kind of play <laughs> In small parlors, or I guess in their day they were called salons, where aristocrats would all gather together, sipping tea and talking over the the best in European gossip and politics, while he would be playing his piano in the background. And those of you musicians, if you've ever played a gig at a coffee shop or um, at a restaurant you know how frustrating it can be. You're playing along and the crowd is noisy or disinterested or disruptive. Well, on this one occasion, Beethoven was playing a very soft and gentle piece, which could hardly be heard over the the hum of the crowd. And as the, the notes of this little sonata were still lingering in the air at the end, he unceremoniously uh, takes his forearm and and he says in German "nim das," which is "take that." <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you parents have wanted to do the very same thing in your living room <laughs> at times, or you you teachers um, or you musicians. It's something of what we find here in Luke chapter 12. Um, you know, Luke's gospel begins with the, the song of the angels Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace on earth, and goodwill to all men. I mean, they come along, and we celebrate it at Christmas how Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he brings, but it's almost as if. <laughs> Here in the middle of the gospel, he throws his arm down on the piano keys and says, Nimdas, prince of peace, I'm the prince of division. I mean, what a polarizing kind of statement to make. There's a parallel passage to this one, and it's found in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37, It accompanies this. He says, uh, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And what is the man saying? He's saying, I have come to bring division in families and among family members. I mean, not always, of course. But in the first century, when you're talking about the very first generation of Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, you know, many of them were cut off from their families and communities when they decided to follow Jesus. It continues throughout the world today. I read a fascinating interview this week. It was, um, the guy was a former Islamic radical. And what they did in the article is that they didn't uh, they didn't actually give his name, true name, and location. those were not disclosed, but they called him al Rashid, and his assignment was to go and to kill a Christian pastor's family, abduct the pastor, and then try to force him to convert back to Islam for the for the pur- purpose of being a tool of propaganda they Al Rashid and his team tried on three different occasions to pull this off. The very first time, they had planned a night raid outside of the family's home. And at the very last minute, they, they called off the raid after seeing what appeared to be soldiers suddenly garrisoned and stationed around the family's house for the first time they'd ever seen this. I mean, they'd been scouting it out for weeks. They'd never seen it before, but, but there were soldiers So they called it off. The second time, they tried to poison the pastor's children. The pastor was a very poor man in a poor family with hungry kids. They invited or asked a woman who was a friend of the family to carry to the children some poisoned fast food and to put it into their hands. But as she was on her way to the house, a stray dog attacked her seriously injuring her and keeping her from delivering her gift. So they try it a third time. A third time they send a woman, this time carrying poisoned chocolate. This time it's a success. The the pastor's daughter ends up eating the chocolate, getting very sick, so they rush her to the hospital. And here's the bizarre account in Al-Rashid's own words about what happened next. I was watching with two others from an ambulance near the hospital to see his daughter's death. Our plan was to kidnap the dead body along with his family in our ambulance. When something happened, I saw a ball of light come down from the sky and stand over the room where his daughter was lying unconscious. I watched as a hand came out from the ball of light "'touched the pastor's daughter, and immediately she regained consciousness, stood up and began walking. "'And I saw that there was a hole in the middle of the hand, and blood was flowing out of the hole. "'I began to tremble, and I collapsed onto the floor of the ambulance. "'My friends, who had no idea what was going on, uh, they, they picked me up, they took me home, and we abandoned the mission.' Over the next several days, Al-Rashid, every time he would close his eyes, would see this vision of the hand with a hole in it. And every time he would see the vision, he would hear a voice speaking to him, asking him the question, Why are you nailing me? Well, it turns out he had a Bible in his room. You say, what is an Islamic radical doing with the Bible? He was reading the Bible in order to uh, criticize Christianity and justify his Islamic beliefs. He, well, now he goes after the vision. He goes to the Bible, and he opens it up. The first place he opens up to is John chapter 1, and his eyes fall on verse 9, where he reads, The true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. He who made the world was in the world, but the world did not recognize him. At that moment, Rashid did. He recognized him. He recognized the light, and he believes. Now, I've, I've heard plenty of stories like this from the Middle, Middle East. If you talk to any kind of um, missionary, you hear these repeated over and over again. But the reason I think, uh, the reason I find a story like this credible is it actually follows the pattern of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you would have these Christians, they would see a vision, and what the vision would do is it would take them back to the scriptures. And from the scriptures, they would believe and be converted. The other thing that I note that's really interesting about this, um, it's almost terrifying, is that these visions come at a terrible price at a terrible cost to those whom receive them. I mean, we hear a story like this and we say, Ra, Jesus, this is great. You know, show yourself to the rest of the world. But but on a certain level, this is the cruelest thing that could happen to Islamic man or woman, is it not? Because, I mean, to imagine having, having such a powerful experience of Jesus Christ and knowing that it is going to inevitably rip your life apart. You're going to experience, you know, verses 49 through 53 in in the most tragic sense. It will bring division between father and son, and son and father, and mother and daughter, and etc. Not because you want it to, but because your family members will reject you and will possibly try to kill you for bringing shame on your family. Or think closer home. I mean, it's easy to talk about uh, Islam, but but what about closer home? What about the man who is third-generation LDS and grows up in Provo, Utah, goes off on his LDS mission right after high school, falls in love, gets married, has a temple marriage, has lots of kids, becomes a Boy Scout leader, is a bishop in the meeting house, How much does he, how much does it cost him when he finally realizes that the Trinity is missing from his religion? How much does it cost him when he realizes that the version of Jesus that the 14-year-old Joseph Smith was given in 1840 is a completely different version of Jesus than has been established for the last 2,000 years? I mean, think how, how almost cruel it is for him to have to, to have to experience the very thing, the cost of discipleship that Jesus was presenting to these first century Jews when he says, who do you think I am? Now, on one level, I don't wish that on anybody. But, of course, I wish it for everybody because it's precisely what Jesus Christ is calling people to, here at the end of Luke chapter 12. So I have three points, and they're relatively short. I'll try my best. Number one, and this point is for those of you, I, I know that you're in a minority, but there are some people here today who don't consider themselves to be Christians, and maybe you're wrestling with faith, maybe you're on the fence. What I want you to see from Luke chapter 12. Number one, it, Jesus demands a radical response of some kind, positively or negatively, but never moderately. Think of it this way Imagine uh, what if on Thursday I decide to attend the local Boise City Council meeting. In the middle of the meeting, I stand up and I say, everybody in this room needs to love me, Brad Cheney, and be committed to me more than anything else in your life. And if you do not love me more than your husbands or your wives or your kids, you are not worthy of me. You you could hear the paddy wagon driving up um, on front street. Because that's just crazy talk. And, And here's what people don't realize Survey the rest of your your great leaders of world religions. None of them talk that way. Muhammad never said worship me. Buddha never said love me. They've always they always said you know love God and obey God or find the truth or I'll point you towards the truth. But they never said I am the truth. Nobody in the history of world religions talked as. As crazy as this guy did. So, I mean, and this is what C.S. Lewis calls the trilemma, and you've heard it in a lot of different forms. But the appropriate response to Jesus' claims is either denounce him for being evil or run from him because he's a lunatic or fall down and worship at his feet. All of those reactions are perfectly consistent with the claims that he makes for himself. What you can't do is respond to him Moderately. You're not taking him seriously if that's the case. And I know uh, well-intentioned people are are going to give you the typical piece of advice. How you're not supposed to get too involved in religion. You're you're not to get too caught up in this whole thing. And What they forget... And I'm one of these people because I consider myself moderate by nature. What they forget is that moderation... Is not always a virtue. I mean, if there's a guy who says, I'm moderately in love with your daughter and want to marry her. <laughs> I'm moderately opposed to sex trafficking. That's not going to cut it. No, and there's certain areas in life where where moderation is not an option. If you are really taking things seriously, So if Jesus Christ is is not who he says he is, then his thinking is deeply distorted and flawed. And if he claims, if he is who he claims to be, he is infinitely more than just a great religious leader and thinker because he claims to be ultimate reality. And and the only appropriate response is is radically positive, radically negative, but never half-heartedly moderate. Number two, let's go to the second point. I want to, in this point, speak to those of you whose families are un- are not united in faith. Maybe you have a mom or a dad who um, is not a believer, or maybe you have a, a son or a daughter who has wandered away from the faith. I mean, nothing breaks our hearts more than having our families uh, not harmonious in in the faith, and I, I read a passage like this where jesus comes and he says i 'm the divider, and I thought, "What about you i mean how do you, how do you gather any comfort <laughs> when Jesus Christ comes along and says i 'm a, I'm a divider i don 't want him to be a divider, I want him to be a uniter and, and here 's what I would say to you um, ultimately ultimately, Jesus Christ is look at the trajectory." of his own family, and pray that God would repeat it in yours. What do I mean by that? Remember, uh, his very first sermon that he preached in Nazareth, and I've said this before, but um, if you have a child who goes on to play in the NBA, their very first game in the NBA, they step out onto the hardwood, uh, I mean, it's an exciting moment for you as a parent, but you're not entirely astonished. You've been watching them play and shoot baskets in the backyard for years and years and years. You've taken them to all kinds of high school games. It's not a shock to see how they perform in game number one. Likewise, if you have a child who is a virtuoso as a musician, you've heard them play pieces on the piano hundreds and hundreds of times in your living room, uh, on your living room instrument. The funny thing about preaching Is the first time your family and friends hear you preach? It really is the first time. (laughs) And when your first sermon goes as badly as Jesus Christ did in that first sermon in in Nazareth, when he's preaching through the, the book of Isaiah and he says, I am the one who brings the day of the Lord... I am the one who, who points to all of this. I mean, remember, they hated his sermon so much that they wanted to kill him. It was the first time they, they had seen him go live, and they all rejected him. And I just have to imagine it was one of the, the most painful moments in our Savior's life. That's how it starts. Jesus starts, oftentimes enough, dividing the family Brothers and sisters, his own brothers and sisters said, We want nothing to do with you. We think you're crazy. We don't, Messiah, come on. They wanted, it starts out in in division. But thanks be to God, what happens after the resurrection? It ends in unity. It is after the spirit is, is poured out upon Jesus that his brothers and sisters not only believe, that, but become their greatest supporters. And I what I would say to you is if your family is broken apart right now and, and your kids or your parents do not share your faith, pray to God and say, Lord, do in my family what you did in your own. Lord, bring resurrection into my family End the three days of darkness in the grave and be the uniter of our faith. Because ultimately, Jesus Christ is the uniter of families. Ultimately, it is Satan who is the home wrecker. I've watched Satan break up so many homes, even in our church. I've had, I've had a husband in our church leave his wife and kids and move out of the country because he said America is so bad and America's gonna be under the imminent judgment of God. He picked up and, and moved to Panama. I've seen I, I've seen homes broken apart that way. I have seen wives dump their husbands because they suddenly discovered, gosh, I've been a lesbian all these years and I've just been living a a lie. I've I've seen so many homes broken up on a journey to self-discovery. That's how Satan does it. It's not... It seems to me that the, the division that God sanctions and commends is, is a journey and a division because of Jesus. It's a journey towards Jesus. And the type of wrecking that the da- devil wants is always a journey to find out myself. Just find out who I truly am. Um... And what does it leave but just a trail of of destroyed children behind? No, the devil has been a home wrecker from the beginning. And so in addition to praying, God, do in my family what you did in your own, you also pray, God, I denounce the devil as a wrecker. I denounce him as, as the one who divided Cain against Abel and Esau against Jacob, the one who sent Potiphar's wife against Joseph, the one who sent Bathsheba to destroy David. I denounce him and flee from him. Have mercy on us all. Number three. Uh, so, there was this old maritime phrase which was used by sailors. It has to do with the verses 54 through 56 in our passage. It's called, I'll call it red sky syndrome. Beware of red sky syndrome. And this, the, the phrase used by sailors to predict the weather, they could look at the sky, and if it was red at night, they would say, Red at night, sailors delight. And if it was red in the morning, they would say, Red in the morning, sailors take warning. Jesus says, he, uh, he rebukes the crowd saying, when you see a cloud rising up in the west, you know that that's a sign, a, a rain is coming. Because you know, clouds in the west would have come up off of this, the Mediterranean Sea, it would be full of water vapor, and as it went up the slopes to the city of Jerusalem, up into the hills of Palestine, you know, it would condense and it would rain. Or he says, you people are able to tell that there's a south wind blowing, verse 55 And so it will be a hot day when the the southerly winds uh, come out of the Judean desert. You know that it's going to be a scorcher. He says, you know how to interpret obvious signs of weather, but you have missed the signs which have announced the arrival of my kingdom. You have missed those signs. Signs that were obvious to you. Signs like the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the king has come. The king is here. So that was red sky syndrome in the first century. Hope that makes sense. I think, though, that red sky syndrome in the 21st century is is the people who spend all of their time and energy trying to predict the arrival of Jesus Christ again. R.C. Sproul was... uh, being interviewed the other day, and somebody asked him the question, R.C., what do you say when somebody asks you the question, um, are we in the last days? Are we in the last days? Are we in the last chapter of history prior to the second coming of Jesus? And his response was, "Um, yes, and I don't know. Yes, we are in the last days. We have been in the last days for the last 2,000 years, and since we are in the last days, the scriptures tell us to live in a spirit of vigilance and diligence. From the time Jesus departed this planet in clouds of glory and until he returns, vigilance and diligence. But are we living in the very last minutes of the last hour, uh, of the last day, when Jesus is going to return tomorrow? Is Is that, and he says, I don't know. Here's what I do know, that when Martin Luther was going through all of the upheaval in the 17th century, where the church and the papacy and all of it was corrupt, was such a mess, Martin Luther thought that those were all signs of Jesus' imminent appearing. He thought that Jesus was going to come any day, and he was wrong. Then Jonathan Edwards, who is one of the great theologians of the 18th century, He was reflecting on the way that religion had declined in the world between the years of 1620 and 1750. And he was convinced that the world's going to the dogs and that it's running out of time. Jesus could come at any minute, R.C. Sproul said, and he was wrong. When I look at the two titans of theology, like Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards, and I see them making predictions and voicing their expectations of a near return of Jesus and being wrong... That gives me some pause. <laughs> I don't know. What I do know is we're 470 years closer to it than Luther was, and about 250 years closer to it than Edwards was. Don't fall victim to red sky syndrome. Instead of running around trying to predict the the imminent return of Christ or the imminent fall of the United States of America. Don't waste your time trying to predict. Be diligent to lay your life down on behalf of the those who do not yet know Christ. We will go and we will pursue people who are in despair, is what Jesus says about his followers. We will involve ourselves in the messy lives and situations of people around us, and bring to them the message of the gospel. That is what the wise Christian does. The wise Christian doesn't sit around reading the headlines and trying to figure out what day and what hour. They're they're spending all of their time trying to do something productive for this world, which means laying themselves down on behalf of their friends and their neighbors. Okay, let us... Finish by looking back at the beginning of the passage. Let's go back to verse 49. This whole section starts out kind of weird to me. Jesus, did you see he's impatient? He says, I can't wait until I cast fire upon the earth. He wants to kindle a fire. Let it burn, he says. But then the very next verse, verse 50, he says... He speaks about his own baptism by fire. He says, I can't wait for the fires of heaven to come and, and purify this earth. Have you ever noticed that you don't, um, you don't purify, say, a tablecloth by putting it into the fire? <laughs> it doesn't work very well, does it? You only purify things which are going to last by putting it through the fire you only take a piece of ore in order to to burn out the impurities of the gold you put that type of stuff through the fire and Jesus says I can't wait till this whole earth which is going to last is put through the fire which I'm going to kindle but I have a baptism of fire that I must go through first what is he referencing when he talks about his baptism by fire it's the cross Jesus Christ says, I did not come to earth the first time to bring justice or to bring the fire. Rather, I came to earth to bear the fire. I did not come with a sword in my hand but so that nails could pierce my hands. And, and here's the key. Every other religion is going to tell you, here are the things that you do in order to uh, make yourself right with God. It is only Christianity which will tell you that you can do nothing on your own, but Jesus has come and done it all on your behalf. Jesus dies on the cross in our place, taking the punishment of our sins, which we deserve, so that he can come again to this earth with fire to put an end to evil without putting an end to us. What I would do is invite you, um, you know, this week we don't have it in our bulletin, but a lot of times I'll put underneath the passage or the section here, the Lord's Supper. I'll put a prayer, a very simple prayer of belief. And if you've uh, you've never prayed this before, uh, I'd encourage you to do so. It's it's dangerous. If you pray it truly, it will cost you very very much. But you know, there are some people who have discovered Jesus Christ is worth. Suffering the loss of your parents' approval, the loss of your community, the loss of your comfort, brothers and sisters. Because he is ultimate reality. And here's the prayer, if you even want to pray it right now, silently. Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I than ever realized. But I have heard good news that through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. I thank you for paying my debt on the cross, taking what I deserved in order to offer me complete forgiveness. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sins and put my trust in you. Amen.